0: Hi, my name is Ruby, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant, and you're listening to the Dr. Finlayson Fife Podcast Archive. The podcast you'll be listening to today is entitled Transactional Faith, originally produced and published by Sheree Phelps. We're excited to share this episode with you, but before we do, we wanted to mention Dr. Finlayson Fife's Valentine's Day sale, currently happening on her website. Dr. Finlayson Fife's acclaimed online relationship and sexuality courses for LDS couples and individuals are currently 20% off the regular price, plus additional discounts when you purchase more than one course. Sales on these courses are rare and don't last long, so be sure to head over to our course page to purchase an online course today. You can find a link to the course page in our show notes. Welcome, and we hope you enjoyed this episode.
1: masterful music and compelling story of The Fiddler on the Roof earned its rightful place among Broadway's most loved. But what is it about the story that draws in so many people? It's both compelling and inspiring to watch the different individuals in the story as they confront the complexities of their culture, their poverty, their tradition, and their faith. The listener is given the privilege to watch from a safe distance as each person in the story wades through the very difficult process of making choices when tradition, faith, and love collide in painful and confusing ways. Deborah Fellman's memoir, Unorthodox, is another brilliant work of art that provides the reader with an intimate experience to watch as she struggles with the faith and traditions that have been passed on to her. Deborah Feldman was born in Brooklyn in a yiddish-speaking Hasidic community. In her words, she describes how she was taught to view God. We learn in school that God sent Hitler to punish the Jews for enlightening themselves. He came to clean us up, eliminate all the assimilated Jews who thought they could free themselves from the yoke of the chosen ones. Now we atone for their sins. The first and greatest Satmar Rebbe said that if we became model Jews, just like in the olden days, then something like the Holocaust wouldn't happen again because God would be pleased with us. But how are we pleasing Him with our little efforts, the thicker stockings, the longer skirts? Is that all it takes to make God happy? Why did the Rebbe decide that the women have to shave their heads? I always asked my Bubby. If nobody did that in Europe, Bubby would answer, that the Rebbe wants us to be more devout than any Jew ever was. He says that if we go to the extreme lengths to make God proud of us, He'll never hurt us like He did in the war. Trey Phelps, and this is 10,000 Hours of Writing, an audio blog sorting through morals, ethics, and faith. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson-Fife about transactional faith. Is it wrong to approach our faith as some sort of transaction, believing that if we do what is right, then we will be blessed? Is it wrong to believe that through our actions we can secure certain blessings and outcomes? Can we, through diligent commitment to religious practices, win favor with God and therefore receive a better life? Through our righteous living, can we be spared of horrific events? Can we secure financial security by paying our tithing? Do we open the door to receive revelation by fasting and attending the temple? Do we have the ability to keep our children in the faith by regular family scripture study and prayer? Is the idea of transactional faith misleading? Is transactional faith the wrong way to approach our faith? to start off with, how would you explain what transactional faith is?
2: Well, I think that um, I would think of it as a notion of God that is kind of early in faith development, Mm -hmm. where one sees God as kind of all-powerful and you're hoping that you can bargain with this all powerful God to get things that you want, or you believe are going to make you safe or give you the good life. And so the idea is if I'm compliant or obedient or obey the rules, then I have the ability to kind of bargain for the blessings that I see fit. And there's nothing, um, from a sort of developmental perspective, that's a place that all of us start uh, in terms of our understanding of God. And maybe some of us grew out of that when we were nine years old, okay, but I but I mean that everybody kind of has this idea of themselves as small and powerless relative to this um, power. And so often people see it as that this kind of transactional reality
1: is the way to be safe. You know, reading through the Book of Mormon and like specifically the war chapters, there seems to be a lot of this, like if we're, we're righteous, therefore we won this battle and we lost this battle because we're wicked. And so mm-hmm. I, I kind of felt conflicted because I feel like we're almost encouraged to be in a transactional relationship with our faith,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but I also feel like it's kind of a limiting way to approach our faith. So I I don't know any yeah. thoughts you have.
2: Well, one thought that I have is that you know, as we are um, in relationship to the scriptures and principles in the church and so on we're often hearing them in very different ways than the person sitting next to us, dependent somewhat on our own level of development and how we think about the world and what's true and so on. And what I would say is if you are wicked, to use that language, if you live by principles that are self-serving, deceptive, harmful to others, you will meet destruction because you can't live by evil concepts that can often be sold as good and not be destructive and live in the consequences of that destructiveness. So it's one idea, and I think this is an earlier idea, that God loves compliance so much that he will harm people that don't do it. Versus give the goods to people that do do it just for the sake of the obedience, just for the sake of following him. But that's a more, that, that's transactional, but it's also a kind of limited idea of God that he just wants people to obey him for the sake of it. Rather than when you live by true principles, you live in the consequences of those, or when you live by untrue principles, you live in the destructiveness of that. And so it's more the idea that if you don't align yourself with truth, it hurts, you pay a price for it. And that's so much what learning and development is about, is to kind of run up against the consequences of your choices and have them shape you and teach you about what's true
1: What would you say mm-hmm. is a more, I guess, spiritually mature or more powerful way to approach or think faith? about these concepts? Yeah. Well, um, to better recognize what a more mature, a more powerful, a more developed kind of faith looks spirituality spirituality, like, Dr. Finlayson Fife explains that it's helpful to understand a little bit about emotional development first. what spiritual development looks
2: like, and
1: in those
2: Um, I think it's Ken Wilber talks about these ideas of kind of our morality, our moral thinking goes from egocentric to ethnocentric to world centric to cosmocentric as we develop. And many of us don't develop beyond the egocentric and we don't develop beyond the ethnocentric, but in the egocentric, the primary motivation is safety and safety. And so you think about ethics in terms of what's going to keep you safe. And developmentally, you kind of can't grow past this stage until you're about seven years old. So about the time that we get baptized is when a child becomes capable of more ethnocentric thinking. That is more about their relationship to others and what is expected of them in the way they relate to others. But prior to that stage, and many people get baptized who haven't, developmentally move beyond the egocentric stage. And egocentric sounds negative, and I don't actually mean it. You you have to go through these early stages in the thinking of, of these developmental theorists. But you're trying to establish a sense of your own sufficiency, your own adequacy, the sense that you are safe, that you can be in relationship in the world in a way that keeps you safe. And
1: I think Visualize a sort of developmental ladder, starting at egocentric when we are born and beginning to move towards ethnocentric in our elementary years, with the possibility of growing into a world-centric development as adults. Of course, many factors in our lives can impact our emotional development. I think when people grow up
2: with very harsh, punitive parents where there's a lot less certainty about um, that, that good action will, how to say it, if they feel that they live in a world that's much more uncertain, that parents can't be depended upon, that desire for safety and looking for an outside force that's going to give you safety is a very compelling idea. If children grow up in a more stable environment and they recognize that, that when they engage in right action, there are positive consequences and there's consistency across those consequences. They start to trust the world more and grow into cognitively around age seven or eight, grow into the ability to understand that they have a responsibility to others and others have a responsibility to them. And so then what does right action look like within their community, within their family, within their religious group, within their society? And so, this is the age that people become more capable of, of, of a sense of um, what is how do say it, of convention, and of the fact that they that there are rules that need to be followed because they have consequences for themselves and other people. It's not quite so self-centered.
1: So that probably would be, I mean, you could probably say then someone in the egocentric and ethnocentric most likely may be operating out of like a transactional f- type of faith, kind of a quality of faith. So what would you, I mean, if you were to describe someone who's more in the world-centric or cosmocentric, centric like what might their faith look like or their relationship to faith? Like, How would you describe what that looks
2: like? Well, it's more internalized not so much linked to obedience and authority outside of yourself, but a deeper internalization of authority and truth. And so it's more integrity-based and it's more in alignment with true principles. Sometimes people misunderstand the idea of differentiation or integrity to be well, now you can make up your own rules and you, as long as you can convince yourself it's the right idea, you can now do it. And of course, I'm sure there are many people who use that idea to do exactly that, to rebel against the rules or to self-serve and justify it. But if it's an actual expression of a deeper moral development, you're not doing what is good because you want the validation of the group. You're not doing what's good because you're afraid of the eternal consequences. You're doing those, may all be a part of your thinking and how you've come to where you are, but you're doing what's good because you care about the good, you care about being a part of it, you care about humanity, you care about its impact. And so, that's what I think Christ was speaking about when He, I mean, this is one of many versions of this, but when the right hand doesn't know what the left hand doeth, right? It's because it's not like this sort of you're doing good for its own sake, not because you want it to be seen as good, understood, how it reflects on you. That's not the motivational element at that point in development. Think about like lots of leaders and so on who do integrity-based action that often they're doing what is right, even though it will cost how they are seen and understood, even though it will discredit them from people that don't understand. I mean, Christ was always doing this. But for the person who does that, which I always respect deeply, is that what is true, what is right, is more important than their ego, even though they will take a a big hit socially for doing what they firmly, uh, or fervently believe is right.
1: One story um, I heard all growing up was the story of Mary Fielding Smith, her tithing story or after Hiram had passed away and she was paying her tithing and so on said, oh, like, you don't need to pay your tithing. You're in, you know, mm-hmm. such a, you're in a hard position. And she said, I pay my tithing, not only because it is a law of God, but because I expect a blessing by doing so. Yeah. And I struggle with that. Like I'm doing this because I expect God to bless me. is that, I don't know, what are your thoughts mm-hmm. around Well, you know, that's a
2: story that, I mean, who knows how she really thought about that. I, I don't, I don't know that we know for sure, but, um, certainly it's a story that can be told because we like the idea that she's got a bargain with God and we want to teach our kids that same idea that, you know, they pay their tithing, then they're going to get financial blessings or they're going to get other kinds of blessings. Um, I remember when I was maybe, I don't know, 25 or something. I remember that um, my parents had a fire in their house and they ended up um, doing some renovations after because of the fire. And so a ward member just came over and was helping my parents paint in the middle of the week. Like I'm sure she had lots to do. And and I was just really impressed that she was there helping my parents paint. And I was like, it's so kind of you to do this. I like, you know, what motivates you? Maybe because I was thinking I'm not that generous. I don't in the middle of the week go help somebody in the ward. (laughs) And and she said, Oh, because I need the blessings. I desperately need the blessings. That's why I'm here. And she and I kind of chuckled. I thought she might be joking, but she wasn't is how she thought about it. And I, I remember just thinking that was a very interesting idea that she was kind of saying, it looks more generous than it is. I, I just need blessings pretty badly. And this is my bargaining with God. And I I just, I don't think the world really works that way. I mean, I think how the kind of blessing she got was my parents' gratitude. She got to know, she was able to know that she made a difference for my parents. I mean, um, I think she enjoyed our company. I mean, so what I'm saying is, I think there's inherent blessings In the sense that when you serve others, people are happier. There's lots of research on this that actually being kind to others has much more to do with your happiness than your physical beauty or how much money you make. Um, You know, doing something meaningful for the people around you highly impacts your sense of self and so on. So these are true principles, and they bring inherent blessings, but that's different than the idea um, that you're going to get a reward beyond it because then it actually kind of, in my view, I don't know that it's virtuous to say you don't harm people because you're terrified of hell. I mean, that's still a good, if that's a deterrent and that's the only one that works, I would still say that's valuable because don't want people that harm people, but it's certainly not as virtuous as not harming people because they, you, care and you have the capacity to care and you care what impact it has on them that's a higher level of excuse me a higher level of reasoning and higher morality because it's not about how it serves you immediately it's more about being aligned with the good and having a desire to do what is good for its own sake that's godly
1: so I, i a lot of times in the new testament christ is talking about when he's talking about faith he'll say things like to the disciples oh you you have little faith or other times he'll compliment people's faith and say something like no greater faith have I seen like there seems to be some moments when he's kind of I don't know acknowledging different qualities of faith yes I don't know if you've ever thought about or have any thoughts towards like when he's saying you know this is little faith and this is great faith I mean, do you think it's kind of the same thing that you're describing that, that quality of faith that's more focused on what's,
2: yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about some of those stories and kind of what, what I also can imagine is sometimes that, you know, what faith is in my view is moral courage. The courage yeah. to do what you believe is right, even if it has a high cost to you personally, and it's not—it's not the kind of psychological martyr that we sometimes talk about. The person who wants to be seen as long-suffering, and you know that we've talked about even this kind of—you know—you get a hit of superiority because you're doing the long-suffering thing. None of that. But when Christ is talking about the widow's might, you know, this person who has so little but wants to do what is good and benefits the collective, that is the right thing, and there's high sacrifice in it. I think Christ, God, saved the highest acknowledgement for that kind of courage. I was just saying to my husband this morning, in all of the turmoil that we're in in the country, that that the thing that demoralizes me most personally is to watch people betray their responsibility, Um, whatever position they're in as a parent, as a leader that when their own ego drives them to do what betrays what they have a responsibility to. And but conversely, what I appreciate most deeply and have the deepest respect for is people who do the, take the harder path that stand up for what is honest and true even at their own personal cost and that's the backbone of society that's the backbone of, relation, of good relationships it's the backbone of good parenting and whenever I see people do it, I, it it inspires and helps me remember that goodness is real that God is real and it's what it's about and it's what it asks of us I think sometimes when I'm up against moments that call for my courage or my honesty, it's helpful to remind myself that ultimately, to remind myself of my faith in the principle, that is to say, it's uncomfortable, but ultimately I know this makes my life better. It frees me ultimately, that it takes some bravery right now, but it's the right thing to do. So that is to say, it's kind of reminding myself that right action blesses me also, or that it yeah. makes my life freer. And that can kind of help as well, For at least for me, in the moment of a moral decision where I, where I want to step into my fear or into my cowardice. Um, so that's true, that when you live true principles and you have integrity, it doesn't only serve just others and divine purposes. It also makes your life richer and freer. But that's a little different than the idea of, you know, I'm expecting a mansion on the other side, so I'm gonna go, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I hope so-and-so, you know. I mean, it, yeah. that's, that's a lower level of thinking, even if it's a place where many of us begin.
1: My next thought, um, before I interviewed you the other day, I was kind of looking at transactional faith as like the wrong way to approach faith. Mm -hmm. But what I hear you saying is it's not necessarily the wrong way. It's, it's just the beginning of your approach to faith. Like it's the early development of faith,
2: right? Yes, it's exactly. It's the early development of morality and understanding good and evil and understanding self and you don't have any other place to start except to start in the egocentric stage yeah you can't become wise like our parents in heaven that would have a cosmocentric understanding that is that they really see broadly they see what is you only have the option of beginning from your own sense of me not me i mean just like You just have to start with kind of that very early primitive stage of development. And so you're going to be relating to what is right and wrong from that limited perspective, but it still matters for creating a structure internally that allows you to move into broader and broader understanding, richer and deeper understanding.
1: When you're in the transactional faith kind of spiritual development, um, I think there's those times when the transactions don't work. Like, for example, uh, like a a kid praying to find a lost item and they don't find it or, you know, paying your tithing and you still don't have enough money to cover your bills or fasting on fast Sunday, and you still don't feel really a spiritual outpouring, you know, like those moments when your religious acts of worship, when the transactions don't seem to work.
2: Yes. I think some people think, well, God has betrayed me, but I would say it's just the God in your mind that's betrayed you. That is to say, you need to let go of that God and grow into a truer picture of God. So the disillusionment is valuable if you let it be in teaching you more about what is true and, and what is good and what that's really about. And so... You know, I think sometimes we want to insist on the picture that's in our mind, and in some ways stay in it by saying, "Well, there's two ways to understand what I'm going to say next." But, well, okay, that reward I'm just going to get in the next life. Like in a way, they kind of push off to a sort of dishonest interpretation. They push off the kind of exposure of the frailties in their view by kind of patching it together still, and out of fear maybe hanging on to an early view of God and what is true. But a more faithful one, a more courageous one in some ways is allowing the disillusionment to teach you something, allowing your conceptions to fall apart in some ways as disorganizing as that is, as long as you remain in pursuit of what is true and what is good that you can create a truer or more expansive picture, a picture that accounts for more. And um you know, I, I think it allows you to be more compassionate and to be more truth-based. I mean, I think when I was younger, I thought I have the advantages in my life because I'm good. You know, because there's this of something about me, you know, when I was six or seven years old, I thought, you know, this must be God's affirmation of me personally. And I just think I've thankfully grown out of that view (laughs) and see it more as I have been given some good things. I've had hard things in my life too, to be clear. Um, But I do feel grateful for all of it and see myself having responsibility to others who are as beloved and valuable as me who may have had a harder path. And that this is not about who's, you know, deserved better. That's for sure. Yeah. This does maybe have something to do with responsibility. And um, which is a scarier interpretation, frankly.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. it asks
2: more. Yeah. And also the kind of compassion
1: that we must have for each other. So it seems like those, when those transactions aren't working, it's almost, I mean, you could almost see it as an invitation to push your faith into a higher place.
2: I mean, I think sometimes we, can think in terms of I have this trial because God is wanting to punish me for something or has a very specific lesson I should be learning. And sometimes that may be true, I suppose. But I, I tend to think of it more as what does this reality teach me about myself, about others, about what is true and about God. Like as hard as this may be, as uncomfortable as this may be, what is there for me to learn from this? And like life is there to teach us, and that God is there to, in God is sort of accessible in the here and now, in our relationships, in our experience. It's not always lessons we want to learn or that feel good to learn, but it is there to understand if we are in pursuit. I mean, I think one of the strong lessons I took from my early. Um, instruction in our faith was this idea that truth matters and that pursuing truth matters and that truth will set you free and so I think for me often I have thought that the kind of the anchor in the storm is what is true and as hard as it might be as, as uncomfortable as it might be pursuing what that is and aligning myself with it is what will stabilize my life. And I think that's that our our willingness to do that and to go through the discomfort of that is an expression of faith. It's an expression of moral courage. But it's also what pushes us into deeper stages of of development. Yeah.
1: I think I think that idea I mean I've, I've noticed kind of that thread of that idea throughout a lot of your your courses and you know your teaching your your podcast that the idea that um, truth sets us free yeah even though truth's not always comfortable yes and the process of coming to know truth is not always a comfortable or maybe not even pleasant at sometimes that's yeah not a and i think that that one idea well that's been a very impactful idea at least for me very meaningful to think about truth in that way that it's this it's this process yes It's, it's an ongoing pursuit
2: yes exactly and i think it helps you see yourself more clearly and see others more clearly but I find it always uncomfortable. <laughs> I always, I always <laughs> want to think I'm going to be better at it. But you know, it's like seeking to understand the people you don't understand, the perspective you don't understand, not just to dismiss it, but to really kind of know what does the world look like from that perspective? How would one see me from that perspective? What can I see about myself from that perspective? And I don't know, I find it always hard, and I always resist it, but I'm always better when I let myself kind of be shaped by it and tolerate
0: it.
1: You typically talk about that process, that the faith in truth and the pursuit of truth but you also bring up love and how love helps to develop faith, Mm. like loving other people. Yes.
2: Yes. And uh, you know, it's interesting. I'm just thinking about it a little, I'll say something about that, but I think, and maybe this is what Paul was exactly saying, if I were to think about it again now, but I also think that faith develops love like in the sense that when Mm. I'm willing to kind of yield to what's true, it deepens my compassion for others and myself kind of in this difficult experience of life and all the opposition within it is that it's not easy. And I don't know, it increases my compassion for all of us trying to sort it out um, because it's, it's not for the, the feeble
0: <laughs> to yeah. hear some of this.
2: Uh, but yes, I think love meaning compassion to care about another person to care about how their life experience has yielded where they are, even when they do hurtful or dishonest things. Um, that, that. Um, compassion for what it is to be human and flawed and even destructive. It, it's like to be able to understand better helps you see what is. I think sometimes we want to, faithfulness to just focus on what is good but if you're not willing or able to look at what is dark within all of us or to look at the evil the capacity for evil within all of us ourselves included you can't really understand and value love and goodness so it is loving to walk into the darker corners of humanity i mean it's loving to see it to understand it to shed light on it but it takes a tremendous amount of courage, and I think some people have far more of it than I do, that's for sure. So I, I'm saying it as a student of it as much as anything.
1: A lot of times when prayers aren't being answered or whatnot, a lot of people suggest, you know, well, God's perfect, therefore, if, you know, things aren't working out. There's just something you know, wrong with you. On, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> problems on your side of the you're probably not repenting enough, or you're not studying yeah. out in your mind enough, or you're not fasting enough, kind of like this, this idea that your efforts aren't enough yet.
2: Right? Yeah, it's not my favorite idea. And I don't think it's a kind one, I think, because it can really create this sense of that the individual is the problem and is insufficient rather than, you know, I, I remember struggling with these questions myself a lot, especially during that time, which is, you know, am I struggling to believe and have faith in this idea because I'm broken? Like, is there something wrong with me or is there something limited about the idea? And, you know, this was at least for me, really pushing me to come to try and understand who God is. Is it that all these people have perfect understandings of all these things and I'm just too faithless or are people just kind of going along without thinking about things in the way that I do. Um, And that's why they have their confidence, but that there's something for me to sort out about what feels unclear and And at least for me, in my pursuit of this with God, it it felt to me that God was saying to me, you know, that there's nothing going wrong, that this earnest pursuit of what's true is the path. It's not that, you know, you should just know everything unless there's something defective about you. And so that earnest struggle for truth is part of your development.
1: The part when you start moving away from that transactional faith, that that spiritual mentality, mm-hmm. that it allows you to see it differently, I guess. Yes. I, I've just been trying to tease this apart, this transactional faith, because I feel like it's been a part of my thinking, and it's hard to sort it through and look at what's, I guess the next level, what does the next level of spiritual faith look like the next level of spiritual maturity?
2: Well, I think, you know, one of the things that's a little bit hard about seeing the world as it is, is there's this kind of recognition of how you have less control than you may have imagined when you were younger. And that's hard to wake up to. I mean that you really only kind of have control over yourself in a complex world. Uh, where even stability in society is out of our hands. I mean, and so to tolerate seeing what is can take tremendous amounts of courage to tolerate being awake to what is real. And so when you're saying kind of what I think you're saying is I'm, I'm getting more and more aware that this is a limited frame, even though it's the frame I inherited and was reinforced for me. And so is there a richer or more truthful way to be in relationship to these ideas that, you know, do unto others is still profoundly true, but not because if I'm nice to my neighbor, God's going to protect me from, you know, harm, but that doing unto others as I'd want to be done as I would want done to me is foundational for creating really meaningful, sustaining relationships that bring me joy or it's meaningful for me having a deeper sense of self-respect and a deeper sense of living with harmony with the divine. And so it's like you sort of through, what I would say is that as you pursue what's true, which I hear you saying you're in that process, you start, it's frightening. I think that's why it takes faith to come into deeper knowledge because some of the pieces that you've depended upon start to crumble. But it does allow you to wake up to a deeper truth and a deeper, paradoxically, a deeper peace. So on the one hand, you're losing kind of this overt sense of control that you might have in the transactional phase,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but you start to develop a deeper sense of self-control and self-respect and understanding that is more sustaining and allows you to be in richer relationships with others, with yourself and with the divine. So, I'm not really giving you a concrete answer as much as to say trusting in the pursuit of what's true and allowing yourself to see it and operate within it is that process and it takes courage. Yeah. And trusting that God is in it. You know, I mean, when, you know, a Christian theology is foundationally a relational theology that we understand truth not as true principles or true practices but how we are in relationship to one another to ourselves and to God and that is that as we care about those around us and we're trying to be kinder more fair more honest it it pressures our evolution it pressures our spiritual development and so Trusting that process, tolerating it sometimes is what it's felt like for me, um, helps you come to a wiser understanding of God and self and other.
1: favorite thoughts from this interview you know what faith is in my view is moral courage the courage to do
2: what you believe is right even if it has a high cost to you personally a higher level of reasoning and higher morality because it's not about how it serves you immediately it's more about being aligned with the good and having a desire to do what is good for its own sake that's godly what I appreciate most deeply and have the deepest respect for is people who do the take the harder path, that stand up for what is honest and true, even at their own personal cost. And that's the backbone of society. That's the backbone of relation of good relationships. It's the backbone of good parenting. And whenever I see people do it, I it, it inspires and helps me remember that goodness is real, that God is real, and it's what it's about, and it's what it asks of us. I think some people think, well, God has betrayed me, but I would say it's just the God in your mind that's betrayed you. That is to say, you need to let go of that God and grow into a truer picture of God. I think one of the strong lessons I took from my early um, instruction in our faith was this idea that truth matters and that pursuing truth matters and that truth will set you free for me often I have thought that the kind of the anchor in the storm is what is true and as hard as it might be as, as uncomfortable as it might be pursuing what that is and aligning myself with it is what will stabilize my life. And I think that's that our our willingness to do that and to go through the discomfort of that is an expression of faith. It's an expression of moral courage, but it's also what pushes us into deeper stages. As we care about those around us, and we're trying to be kinder, more fair, more honest, it it pressures our evolution. It pressures our spiritual development. And so, trusting that process, tolerating it sometimes is what it's felt like for me. Um, helps you come to a wiser understanding. Of God and self and other.
0: Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson-Fife and the work that she does, check out the links in our show notes below to learn more about where you can find Dr. Finlayson-Fife's website, her online courses, information about her upcoming events information about her free Facebook group and more. Thank you for being here.